The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here today to take you along the road out of hell. (laughs) In case you're wondering what that is, the road out of hell is the name of a new book that is bound to be a bestseller. Uh, the full title is The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark, and the True Story of the Wineville Murders. And with me today is an award-winning true crime author, Anthony Flacco. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dr. Carroll. I'm very happy to be here. Now, um, this book is uh, not only... Int- I-, I was saying before we got on the air that... Uh, I read it last night and this morning, and I literally could not put it down because it just, you just want to, it is a page turner. You want to know what happens next. Um, even though it's a true story, and in a sense, you know, we, we, it's, it's history, but, um, but when you're reading all the gruesome details, you, you, uh, eat each page. Um, what's interesting about this also is not just the story of this it's kind of a psychological study uh, as well as telling this true crime story. But what's interesting is um, the aspect of redemption that we're going to talk about later, uh, which is why you called it the road out of he- out of hell. Um, and it, it was very fascinating for me to see how to see all the changes that the people involved in the story went through. But before we get into that, um, I would like you to give sort of a thumbnail sketch of the book at first, and then uh, we will take the journey with you in the writing of the book, because starting with um, how you got approached to do this book to begin with, I, I, I do want to give a little bit more bio. Anthony Flacco is an acclaimed author. He is a uh, ghostwriter, um, screenwriter, and public speaker. And he has written lots of other books that I'm sure you've heard of. Um, his, there are two historical crime novels before this one, The Last Nightingale and The Hidden Man, and then uh, a nonfiction book called Tiny Dancer, and then another true crime book called A Checklist for Murder. And, um, and he and he, uh, Charlene Martin uh, wrote a book that I will be having them back on to talk about that's just about coming out now called Publish Your Nonfiction Book. And um, Charlene is Anthony's companion in life in more ways than one. And she is also my literary agent. So um, 
So we both owe her a debt of gratitude, I guess, don't we, Anthony? No, we certainly do. And I'm living proof of the wisdom of sleeping with your agent. I encourage it. (laughs) Yes. Well, okay, talking about sleeping with people, let's get to the road out of hell. Oh, there's a segue. That was great. Okay. (laughs) Um, So tell, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of a, as I said, a thumbnail sketch of the book, and then we'll get into it in more depth. Okay, well, the Wineville murders are the first uh, really thoroughly documented serial murder case in American history. They took place uh, in the desert on a tiny uh, chicken ranch uh, outside Los Angeles from the years 1926 to 1928. Uh, the <clears throat> killer was apprehended in uh, early 29, uh, tried and executed the following year. His name was Gordon Stewart Northcott. Uh, he is uh, thought to have killed upwards of 20 boys, but like all these uh, serial murderers, there may be many, many more victims. It becomes impossible to identify the sum total of uh, people who fell at their hand. The thing that makes this story compelling is that uh, in 1926, he basically kidnapped his own nephew, 13-year-old Sanford Clark, up in Canada and brought him down to Los Angeles where he held him for two years until Sanford was rescued and the case was blown open. So this book uh, is written, uh, it is true crime, but I wrote it as a novel, and, uh, and I praised the publisher, Sterling Publishing, for allowing me to do that because I warned them when they bought the book that I was not going to write a standard true crime piece. I said, I will stick to all the facts and I'll do all the research, but I'm writing a novel here. And what that means is I'm, I, I am Sanford Clark's man in the writing of this book, and every single decision I've made in the telling of the story has to do with this boy, his perception, what he was thinking and feeling during those two years. The reason I think that's so important is because if we take his very dark part of his journey, then I think it's much more valid and fulfilling to take his ride of redemption Mm. that goes on for uh, uh, just over five decades after he was rescued there. Hmm. So when when you say a novel, meaning that um, even though you did exhaustive research, of course there really wasn't anything that would tell you exactly what he was feeling uh, at each step so that you were you inferred that, and that's what you're calling the novelization part? No, the part I'm calling novelization is that you uh, go far into a person's head and into their point of view, which is often or uh, generally not done in true crime, which is a much more journalistic uh, mm. form of writing. Mm. But I felt, I mean, first of all, this case is, is thoroughly documented on the Internet. All the old newspaper articles are there. Uh, the movie Changeling was done on one very small aspect of the case, on one of the murders of a boy named Walter Collins. So those those things are out there, and I felt like it was unnecessary to retread that tire. And I felt like the story all along is this boy, because mm-hmm. because the story behind that is his redemption and his recovery. That's, to me, what makes this important. Not some crime and not the details of these murders and this crazy psychopath who was just like all the others, Ted Bundy and Manson and all these guys who seem like they're the same personality, mm-hmm. uh, but, but the victim. And because random tragedy can fall on any one of us at any time, I'm interested in how a person recovers. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, then that leads us to um, how you, uh, obviously you've made a name for yourself, as an author and, and including true true crime and historical crime. Um, so I guess that's why um, Sanford Clark, the boy in, in this story, the abducted boy, 13 years old at the time, 
um, why his son, his adopted son, Jerry Clark, sought you out. But could you start with that and how that came about and what you thought when you got the phone call or email? Sure, sure. Uh, well, Jerry Clark, who is a Sanford, the late Sanford Clark's, uh, one of his two surviving adopted sons, has been wanting to get a book done about his dad for many years, and he's kept uh, notes and journals, and he's collected letters from the family and photos, and he, he had this whole body of research. Uh, but he's not a writer, and he was looking for someone to do the book. Uh, he came across my writing and read some of my books and uh, called Charlene, who is my agent, and uh, asked her to approach me with the project, which she did uh, twice, and both times I told her no, because all I heard in what she was saying was, uh, dozens of, of murdered little boys. Uh, yeah, sure, I want to go there. But uh, finally then she said, look, I think you need to talk to Jerry because his passion isn't about this crime, it's about his father. So I called up Jerry and I said, look, why are you, why do you keep approaching me? What is so important? And, and, and most of all, you know, it's just a book. What do you think is going to change mm -hmm. if this book goes out there? What's, what's really driving you? And he said, let me tell you about my dad. He began the story. By the time he was done, he had me fully on board, reason being this kid, who was a very ordinary young 13-year-old, uh, didn't do well in school, he was a daydreamer, uh, he'd been in some minor troubles, but he wasn't a juvenile delinquent, but he wasn't really headed for much of a life, uh, was, was kidnapped and brought here Sam. and had You're this... You're talking about his father now, Sanford. Yes. yes. Go ahead. Was kidnapped and brought to this... this awful farm and, and left there and the way he recovered and the fact that he later married and kept the same wife for 55 years the fact that while he wouldn't have his own children he did adopt two boys who were older boys from the local orphanage that were hard to adopt who would probably not have been adopted by that point in their lives because everybody wants a baby, you know. Um, and he went on to live this wonderful, a decorated war hero, a long career as a mail carrier and loved by the people on his route, even though they knew who he was and they knew his background. That's what captured me, because I think, as I said, we can't stop the random cruelties and insanities of life that sometimes drop on us. So I want to know when people recover and, and, and live wonderful lives, loving lives, open and giving lives after they have been treated with such horrendous cruelty. That's a statement of character that I always want to hear about. And Jerry, when he came to me, he just he showed me his dad and convinced me of that. And that's why I went, all right, there's a story here people need to hear. And But what do you think, you know, for him, uh, do you think it was to clear his father's name? Do you think it was, what, what was the deep reason for him? Well, it's, it's really that he wants to honor his dad. This is, I mean, his dad has, has died, and he's kind of like posthumously trying to give him this gift and all the other relatives in the family this gift and everyone uh, who knew him at the time. And he's strongly motivated that way, too. <clears throat> and Jerry was so important to the writing of this book that uh, you'll see I put his name on the byline next to mine. Mm -hmm. And to Jerry's credit, he didn't ask me to do that. He didn't make it a requirement of getting the story rights or anything like that. It didn't have to be there. But I put it there voluntarily because I could not have done this book without Jerry and all of his insights into his father. Without Jerry and that research, this would have just been another true crime story, right. uh, which does, it doesn't interest me to just sit and talk about cruel psychopaths and the things they do to people. <laughs> um, tell us about how uh, Jerry wound up being told about his father's background. Well, that was um, when Jerry was 17 years old. Uh, his father told him one night that they were going to a hockey game, which they used to go see together all the time. But halfway there, he pulled over to the side of the road, and he said, we're not really going to the game. I needed to get you out of the house because your younger brother, Bob, is too young to hear this. 
but I have to tell you. Uh, he said there, there, there had been a murder in their neighborhood. Uh, a young nurse had been murdered. And the father, Sanford Clark, was afraid that because of that murder, that the press, who f- knew full well who he was and where he lived, was going to pick up his old story and put it in the papers, and that Jerry and Bob, or Jerry, would wind up hearing about it on the schoolyard. And he said, I, I can't have that. If you're going to have to know about this, it's got to come from me. So he said, I'm sorry, I was never going to tell you this, but you know, the cat's about to be let out of the bag, and you have to know, so you're prepared when people start stopping you on the street. And he sat there in the car, they talked for hours, and he told him the whole story, uh, to the point that, and I include this little anecdote in the book, that night, after he had spent so much time telling his son Jerry about being thrown into pits and chicken coops that are covered with boards and, and left there for days, uh, Sanford heard some struggling sounds down in Jerry's bedroom and went down and opened the door. Jerry was uh, having a nightmare, sleepwalking, uh, standing upright in his bed, pushing up against the ceiling over his bed, dreaming that he was down in one of those pits. That's how deeply affected he had been by what he was told. Yes, identifying with what his father had gone through. Well, we do yeah. need to take a break. We're talking today with the award-winning true crime author Anthony Flacco. The name of the book is The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark, and the True Story of the Wineville Murders. We'll be back after we take this break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in 
every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with Anthony Flacco, the author of the new book, The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark and the True Story of the Wineville Murders. And um, this is actually the untold story behind the movie Changeling. And, Anthony, tell us about that. Connection. Well, um, as I had mentioned earlier, the Sanford's son, Jerry, had for some years been wanting to do a book about his dad. But I think for a long time it was just sort of one of those idle things in the back of his mind, kind of like I have, that I want to learn to speak Italian one day. <laughs> uh, then the movie Changeling comes out. Uh, he goes to see it and sees that there's his father as a boy uh, in the movie, but who is a minor character in that story, just comes in at the end, confesses to the murders, breaks down, and then the story goes on from there. And I think he panicked at that. In fact, I know he did, because he felt like, well, they've opened up Dad's story, but they didn't tell it, they didn't resolve it, and now it's out there all over the world with Sanford Clark, just this murdering little boy. Mm. And and Jerry said, I I can't rest, I won't rest with that. Now I have to get this book out. Mm. And that was when he really started uh, pushing to find me, and then once he did, pushing me until I finally responded to him. Oh, that's very interesting. Yes, it's... uh... If, if someone's going to be telling a story about my father, it's going to be the whole story and the, the accurate story. Right, and I so even though this is a different story than the movie Changeling, I do have to thank it for the existence of this book. And, and Clint Eastwood is a director. You know, we we use uh, his quote in, in the promotion of the book just because it's true. After after uh, Eastwood finished directing the movie, he was talking about the character of Sanford Clark. And he said, you know, I've, I've seen uh, just enough information about this guy to know he went on to live a life as a loving husband and father, but you have to wonder how the hell he did that. How did he bury all that crap? That's a whole story in itself. And that what I've just said is, is Clint Eastwood's quote, and it is a whole story in itself, and it's the story as far as I'm concerned. I mean, once again, the, you have the details of the murders, and they're necessary so you understand what the outlines of the story and the crime are, but, but they're not the story. The story is his recovery, and that's why it's called The Road Out of Hell. And that, to my mind, is what makes this story important, and I can tell you for sure it's why I uh, signed up to write it. Okay, so let's follow you along this journey and at the same time sort of take us along the story of, of Sanford Clark. Okay. Well, um, uh, Jerry, Jerry, as I've said, came to me. He came to me a couple of times with it. I, I kept turning it down because I didn't want to get into uh, child murders. He finally convinced me to uh, uh, allow him to tell me about his dad, and that's what pulled me into the story. And at that point, then, uh, I began writing an outline in the book proposal. 
shopping it around, and much to the uh, the credit of Sterling Publishing, when I contacted them, they initially just had interest in this as a true crime story. They said, oh, okay, fine, movie changeling, and first big serial murder in the United States, let's do a book on that. And I had to stop and say, well, slow down here, because truth in advertising, I'm not going to go write a true crime book, and if that's what you need, I've got to go find another publisher. Because what's been made clear to me is the story here is this boy and, and his recovery. And I will, I will be strict with the facts. I'll be strict with the truth. I don't randomly make up anything in this book. Uh, even the parts that are uh, dramatic assumptions that I make are based on the research, what I heard, and what I know about this kid. I never just go off and start making things up as if I were writing my own movie or something here. Uh, and, and it's all in pursuit of this question of how one recovers when random tragedy falls into your life. So... That got me started. That, uh, I finally got that publisher, uh, Sterling, who was willing to uh, support me. And, and I credit them because it's risky. You know, I'm straddling two different genres. Yeah. And publishers don't like that. Bookstores don't like it because they aren't uh-huh. sure what shelf to put you on. Right, Is it historical? Right. Is it a psychological thriller? Should it go near the novels because it's sort of a novel? And you take all those risks when you go off format the way I did. But the story was so compelling. I just knew it. it's got to be told like this. And I just can't worry about the market considerations. I know they're real. I'm not dismissing them. It's just I also see where the story has to go. And it's got to be done that way. That's why the book is written uh, so that it should read like a novel. I should hope that with the exception of the photo, uh, exception of the photo spread in the middle of the book, that when you're reading it, you forget it's true crime. I hope you just start following the story, because if you do that, that's what pulls you closer into Sanford's point of view and state of mind. If you can go in there and if you can stand the level of despair he's with, then you're also going to take his ride of redemption. And ultimately, that's what I'm trying to bring to the audience with this book. It's why I have that title. So I started researching and started doing the uh, deeper outlining on it and the chapter outlining and uh, boy ran into a, uh, a mess that I had not uh, uh, predicted at all. I wound up kind of tricking myself. I mean, in the writing of the book, here the publisher says, yeah, sure, okay, Anthony, we'll, we'll take this uh, approach. Go ahead and write it that way. And then when I sat down to do it, I said, oh my God, I, the, the personal journey you have to go through to write this because if you read it, of course you read through these passages in a few minutes you're through that point in his life in just a few hours, and it goes on by. But if you're writing it, particularly under a time pressure for a quick deadline like I had, uh, that means every waking minute the stuff is in your, your mind and your head, and worst of all, in your imagination. You're creatively feeding it with creative energy and, and, and visualizing and really making it real to your brain. Yes, and you haven't and, really gotten into that, um, the, the, the really, um, what, the... the uh, most horrendous part of it, the sexual, um, the sexual hold and the sexual torture that um, that Stuart Northcott put Sanford through in order to keep him as his, well, as his sex slave and as his accomplice to murder. Yes, we can. Um, in our more modern day cases, the Elizabeth Smart case or the one that's breaking uh, now, the J.C. Dugard case, where we have kidnapped, uh, those were girls, but it works the same whether it's girls or boys who are kidnapped, young people uh, whose personalities are not yet fully formed, whose defense mechanisms are not yet fully formed, who are captured in some way and and then locked into the company of these psychos who, uh, even if they're poorly educated and crazy, they do seem to have a brilliant kind of a genius to them about how to terrorize and traumatize uh, a defenseless person. And uh, uh, 
that's why uh, when I hear these stories, J.C. Dugard and Elizabeth Smart, uh, I, I know that if they are going to recover, if they're going to have the kind of life a Sanford was able to fashion for himself, then they're going to have to have a, a couple, at least a couple of people around them who are unconditionally loving and non-judgmental and yes. supportive. Yes. We, we kick those terms around a lot. Oh, unconditional love. You know, we put it on bumper stickers. But if you stop and think, how often do you really yes. see that in life? It's a rare and wonderful thing, but as rare as it is, you've got to have it to recover. Uh, Sanford had to have it, and uh, so do these girls. That's my hope for them, is that someone is around them. It seems like in Elizabeth Smart's case, you know, her parents formed that psychological wall for her. In the Dugard case, you know, we just don't know yet. As more details come out, we'll see what the girls were put through. But I'm, I'm imagining that the psychological intimidation that went on was very similar to what happened to Sanford. In his case... Uh, great physical brutality uh, was was accompanied it. I mean, you know, we're, we're so indignant over the treatment of the terrorists at Gitmo. Uh, this boy suffered things the, those terrorists would have died under. I mean, to me, it's amazing he even survived the levels of tortures and torment that were inflicted on him. And some yeah, of it was very cruelly, uh, sadistically sexual, uh, and most of it was mental. And, and the mental torture, I think, uh, is by far the worst, even though in Sanford's case... I mean, he was raped repeatedly with, uh, by the perpetrator as well as with foreign objects. Uh, it, it destroyed him uh, physically. Uh, you know, his, his intestines and things didn't work right for the rest of his life. That's how savagely he was raped. So these were nothing like sexual encounters. These were brutal beatings that simply had a sort of sexual aspect to them. And, and yet, it was not the damage done to his body, of course, that caused him uh, years or decades of, of trauma. It was the psychological fact, it, that sense of being in a place where you're in ultimate, uh, ultimate danger and with no one to speak up for you, no chance of escape. Well, let's and talk these... about the escape. I was just going to go there. Um, All right. In the book, you talk about, you know, you allude to or talk about how he felt because that was, of course, one of the questions that kept going through my mind as I was reading, well, why doesn't this kid run out of there? There are times when, when uh, of course, that's what we ask about J.C. Dugard as well, but I think there are differences. But, but anyway, let's not go to... Uh, the, the, you wonder, why didn't he... Uh, there were times that his uncle uh, would leave the ranch altogether for hours, even for a night, and, and still Sanford didn't leave. Now, of course, he didn't have money, um, and yes, you, you described how the other farms were far away, but theoretically, he could have packed up some food. He could have planned this. He could have packed up some food and, um, and tried to get some sense of, of, you know, direction where, which way would be the best way to try. Um, it's, you, you wrote that he had been, he had visited some of the other kids, or I guess they visited him, but, but you just kind of want, now you talk about it, his, his being a prisoner there because of the shame um, and his not wanting to tell people that not only the shame about being a sex slave, being brutalized, sodomized, but also the shame after he then got ensnared into actually taking part in the killings and the, and the burials and so on that he was afraid he was going to get into a lot of trouble. But then, of course, that's what haunted him for the rest of his life, that he didn't um, get out earlier and could have saved some of these 20-plus kids from being killed. Well, you're right, and, and shame really is the operative word there. I, I've learned through my writing you simply cannot underestimate the power of shame in controlling a person's actions. I think 
the most effective set of manacles you can place on anybody is invisible and is made of shame and not steel. And that's what happened to him. And these, these psychos, as I said before, the, the kind of genius element that they have is they intuitively understand that. They understand that the first thing you need to do is to brutalize your victim and make that victim feel it's their fault for being brutalized. You know, they didn't do something that they told them to do. They did something wrong. Or you say that the reason you selected them is because of this or that aspect of them, which is utterly false, but it's enough to start the shame process. And that's really what held Sanford on the ranch. From the beginning, uh, he was very quickly raped and, and brutalized there. And the nature, of, back in 1926, of a heterosexual boy going through this was a horrendous level of shame. Mm. Uh, in fact, I, I hope this isn't too graphic for the show, no. but one of the things that, is, that was in Sanford's case and is common in these kind of kidnap rapes is... Uh, these guys know how to manipulate a young boy's body, in this case a young boy, so that he achieves a sexual orgasm, whether or not they want to, whether or not they're interested. But when that happens, they then say to them, see, you enjoyed it, therefore you want to be here. There's some part of you who's liking this. Well, that's utterly false, but where does a child get the, the ability to discern and reason their way through that? So from the beginning, he did that to Sanford, and Sanford's going, I guess he's right. I guess I'm, I'm a piece of garbage. I mean, clearly, he's saying, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I want to be out in this horrible situation. And he started the shame process with him immediately after taking him away from Canada. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm certain that as we get the details of the J.C. Dugard case, you'll find something similar there. It may not be the same level of sexual brutality, right, right. but that shame component has got to be the thing that would keep those girls behind a fence a matter of a few yards away from people who could rescue them. Because you're right, you do have to say, why does he's a boy, he's 13, but yes, at 13, you're not a baby, you can run. Exactly. Well, Anthony, we we need to run right now. Let me just interrupt you. I'm sorry. We do need to take a break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is Anthony Flacco. His book is The Road Out of Hell. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at SkillsUSA.org. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy 
easy-to-understand tools and tips. With his weekly guest, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time. When pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance, tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're taking you on the road out of hell uh, with my guest, Anthony Flacco. The full name of the book is The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark. And the true story of the Wineville murders. And just to remind you, Sanford Clark is the 13-year-old boy who um, was abducted and made to participate um, in these Wineville murders. Um, before the break, we were ta- I was asking you about why he didn't escape, and and part of this, this, the answer to that, also comes even from who he was before he got to the chicken ranch, um, which was a boy who had been dominated his 13 years by his mother, who seemed to have a lot of psychological problems of her own. Tell us about that. Well, I, I would have to judge her, and I'm uh, not a psychiatrist, but from having researched her, she's a full-blown psychopath in her own right, and that kind of energy ran rampant in the family uh, for whatever reason. I'll leave it up to the nature-nurture debate for other people to try to solve that one, but I can tell you it was throughout the family, not just in her, but in her parents as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was an extremely abusive and dominating uh, woman. Her husband had just completely dominated into, into the corner and was a useless uh, male, and she utterly berated Sanford all the time uh, at every opportunity. So, by the time, by the way, she voluntarily allowed her brother, her uh, younger brother, with whom she was having an incestuous relationship, to take Sanford from the ranch to California. So I say Sanford was kidnapped because he protested vehemently and did not want to go. But legally, it wasn't a kidnapping because his mother allowed it, and he was a minor. Uh, and, but it shows the level of sickness that the, her brother, Gordon Stewart Northcott, the murderer, had come to Canada wanting to take Kenneth, her youngest boy, who was only three. And she knew he was a pedophile. She knew that two years before he had had to leave Canada because of his doings with neighborhood kids. And even so, her response was, no, Kenneth is my favorite, uh, so here, take Sanford as a kind of a, a booby prize. And, uh, and he accepted and took it. So that's, that's the kind of home Sanford was being taken from. 
And when he was first taken, even though I mean he didn't want to go, he did have an aspect of, well, at least I won't be around Mom. Maybe I can make some kind of a life down there in California. Well, he quickly found out that wasn't going to happen. But it just goes to show, I mean, he wasn't longing to get back home to be with his mom by any yeah. means. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it, it just does show, here's this woman who knows what her son is maybe she didn't know that there were going to be murders involved or or were there or were the children in Canada murdered or just sexually no no so I guess if there's anything you can say in her defense (laughs) it's that the the issue of murder was not there but the issue of pedophilia certainly was however here's a woman having an incestuous relationship with the man she's turning the boy over to so how clear is her judgment going to be on pedophilia issues yes now Uh, well, it's as if the kid was just doomed by all the energies yes. and the forces around him. Yes. Now, talking about incestuous relationships, um, you imply um, that um, that uh, the uncle, that Gordon Stewart, was having, I mean, did I get that right, that he was having some kind of an incestuous relationship with his mother as well? I mean, what did his, I mean, obviously, for, for him to have become um, such a prolific <laughs> serial rapist and torturer and killer he had to have been raised in a in a family that was just uh, even a lot worse than Sanford's so yes. what you, you sort of hint about what went on in his family but tell us more about what that was all right. Well, while I don't know if there was uh, technically uh, a physical incestuous relationship between Gordon Stewart Northcott and his mother, there certainly was a very, very sick psychotic relationship. And uh, as Sanford learned uh, to his great dismay after being on the ranch for a few weeks, that the craziness in the family didn't come from Gordon Stewart Northcott. Uh, it came from his mother. And, and who knows who knows beyond her mother and grandmother. Uh, the first murder that Sanford was forced to participate in wasn't... Uh, initiated by Northcott, his uncle, it was initiated by his grandmother, Louise, uh, who decided the boy had to die, decided how he would be killed, which is by an axe blow to the head, uh, killed the boy herself, but while he was on the ground, forced Sanford to take the axe and strike him as well. When Sanford balked and refused and cried and wouldn't do it, they hit him in the head with the axe until he obeyed. Uh, That's the level of force that he was up against. So, um, yeah, Gordon Stewart Northcott himself, the killer, I'm sure, was a doomed creature, having grown up with a mother who was like that. And just like Sanford's father was uh, uh, impotent and ineffective and removed from the situation, uh, Louise's husband, uh, Sanford's grandfather, was also a completely ineffectual man who did nothing to stop it and just sort of stood by and allowed these things to happen. So here Sanford had spent his life surrounded by very toxic brutal female energy and completely ineffective uh, and and uninvolved male energy. It was that paradigm that he was caught in that he had to try to work his way out of. But first, he had to spend two years on the murder farm with his uncle. And what is really fascinating is the thinking that these psychopaths um, go through that you talk about in your book. Um, I mean, you actually show their mind working because one of the reasons why the grandmother wanted uh, Sanford to participate in the killing of, of this first boy was because um, that way she thought that it would make him more, uh, make them make it easier to control him because now he had done something really wrong that he would be afraid to be found out about. 
Yes, yeah, so she and her son were uh, conspiring together to build a wall of guilt and shame around this boy that he couldn't climb over. And that's why they were so arrogant and cocky, is to be able to leave the farm for hours at a time and not worry about him running off. And you know, this is really a common thing that you find in these kidnap cases. There's something in these kidnappers that love the sense of control of saying, you know what, I'm going to go to the grocery store, I'll tell you right now, I'm going to be gone for two hours, and they leave and they love the fact that their victim is afraid to even just get up off the sofa and wander out the front door. Uh, they understand how deeply they have uh, bound that person to them with the guilt and with the shame. Uh, you found the same, and with the Elizabeth Smart case, with the Patty Hearst case, we also find a similar trait of once these people uh, the victims are retaken by the authorities. It takes them a couple of days, usually 48 hours or so, before they can even break down and start telling the truth about what has happened. They always have this rehearsed story that their uh, captor has programmed into them. And even when they're taken from the captor and they're in the hands of the police, they'll try to offer that story for a day or two. It takes that long for the effects of the psychological imprisonment <clears throat> to begin to dissolve and for them to be able to just speak their mind. Uh, the same thing happened with Sanford. Uh, <clears throat> the shame kept him quiet. The program story uh, stayed with him even after he was rescued for a couple of days. Uh, that's something the movie Changeling captures beautifully, by the way, is when he finally breaks in custody and the truth comes out of him like a dam breaking, uh, uh, which, which really did happen. Uh, the, the movie does show that scene, and uh, I credit Clint Eastwood with directing it beautifully, very sensitively, and, uh, and adhering to the truth. Yes. Um, so the the movie Changeling then is really more about the life of this of this boy who was murdered. No, it's about uh, Angelina Jolie plays the boy's mother, and it right. really focuses on her struggle to find her boy, right. her anguish over right. the loss, and then the fact that that this crazy corruption that was going on in the LAPD, they didn't want it known that they had allowed this, these murders under their watch. So they're utterly dysfunctional way of handling it was to say, oh, it's okay, we found the boy, we brought him back to the mother. They, they took a runaway kid, brought him back to Walter Collins' mother and says, here's your boy. And when she said, well, wait a minute, this, this isn't my son, I know my son, they put her in an insane asylum. Mm. And that was how they dealt with it to try to cover their own incompetence. It's nice to uh, know that things haven't changed much in, yeah. uh, in close to 100 years, right? <laughs> That's what you've got to love about historical crime is, you know, the more things change, the more they don't. Yes. Uh, well, you, you know, you that, that actually, that whole, that, that does bring up the question of why and how um, Gordon Stewart, Northcott, the murderer, the uncle, was able to uh, kill so many children and get away with it for so many years. Well, they're the, like uh, child molesters. They develop a, a discerning eye for victims. Um, these, these are guys who can wander through a drugstore and almost tell at a glance which child they could get away with capturing and which ones they can't. Uh, it, it's terrible that they couldn't employ that sort of uh, perception towards, to some good. They could accomplish great things because it's very subtle and very intelligent in a diabolical way. Uh, and uh, Gordon Stewart Northcott would size up his victims by specializing in uh, migrant worker boys. You know, this was not far from the Mexican border. Uh, back then, border control was utterly non-existent, and uh, it was not uncommon in those days for, for young teen boys to wander the countryside looking for work. So they made a wonderful victim pool for a psycho like Gordon Stewart Northcott because these were boys who'd leave their families in Mexico, come up 100 miles or so into California and get jobs, 
But back then, there was, there was no mass media. Most people didn't even have a telephone. So it was completely ordinary for your son to leave, and perhaps you don't hear from him for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. The check comes with some money or something. Uh, so he, he specialized in those boys. And no doubt, there are any number of families down in Mexico who simply had no idea whatever happened to their mm-hmm. boys. They left home to seek work and were simply never heard of again. Yes, and of course, it's interesting, though, that towards the end, um, the uncle was going after people who he did know to some degree. You have to wonder, and we can talk about it when we come back, whether he was a, had a, um, a self-destructive streak that was finally getting to him. We'll, we'll take, talk about that when we get back. We do need to take another break. My guest is Anthony Flacco. His book is The Road Out of Hell. Stanford Clark and the true story of the Wineville murders. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america son we gotta talk about drinking i know I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's not a big deal. Don't, yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I, I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I, I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. 
To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, taking you on the road out of hell with my guest, Anthony Flacco, the author of this book, the Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark, and the True Story of the Wineville Murders, Wineville being in California. And it, you, you talk about how it's now, the town renamed itself. Yes. To Mira Loma. Yes. This, as I said, this, this was the first uh, heavily publicized serial murder in American history. And at a time when there, there was no mass media. And uh, people really, as a society, we were so much more innocent about these kinds of forces. There weren't the movies and TV shows and mm. books to mm. acquaint people with this kind of a thing. And the community was so appalled. and they, they were a lot like a lot of the Germans were after World War II when they were forced to walk through and look at the death camps. Uh, if it's true they didn't know the death camps were there, you can imagine the kind of uh, shock that went to their system to see what was going on. Uh, and that was the same thing here, that level of shock. So um, before the break, we, we kind of left off with my conjecture that uh, the uncle was starting down a self-destructive path um, at the end of these two years yes. before, before he gets discovered. And, and um, because he started not just bringing home uh, migrant workers or kids who he could pick out as uh, being less likely to have family to wonder where they are, but, um, but picking out people who were closer to home. Right. You know, I see this, uh, having, having just researched a bunch of these guys, my, my take on this is that there's almost a kind of a fail-safe built into the psychotic personality in that the rush that they get, which is ultimately their, their target in this, that high that they're going after, gets harder and harder for them to get. And they have to keep raising the stakes on their behavior to get the rush, which is their point of addiction. And uh, we saw this in Ted Bundy. We've seen it in all the big serial killers. They get more and more frenzied and crazy and careless, uh, as if some part of them wants to be caught. Now, I don't think they want to be caught. I just think in pursuit of that rush, they have to become so ridiculously careless that their capture becomes inevitable. That's what happened with Northcott. He started then he quit uh, capturing the migrant worker boys and started picking up uh, local uh, resident boys, and that was began the story of Walter Collins and the movie Changeling. Uh, he did a couple of those boys, two, three that we know of, uh, and possibly many more, and then toward the end, uh, uh, tried to, to kill an entire family, mother, father, and four sons. Uh, Sanford interrupted him on that, and he wasn't able to do it. Um, so uh, I see it as whether or not it, I mean, it's, it's built in that way, the function of this trait, this need for more and more and more stimulation, ultimately drives these guys to get caught, no matter how smart they are, and no matter how clever and careful they've been in the past because to raise their adrenaline, they have to raise the risk. And, of course, you raise risk far enough, sooner or later you draw the short yes. straw. Yes. And um, what about, what, what do you think is, I, I know the book is just coming out, but w what kind of um, 
what has this brought about so far for Jerry Clark, the son of Sanford, who who approached you to write this book in the first place? What, how how has how have things changed in his world? Oh, you know, it's it's been a wonderful thing. Here you have a book with such dark material, and yet, because Jerry spent so many years wanting to do this, and he's a guy with a humble background. He's just been a long-distance truck driver all of his life and uh, spent some time as a cab driver up in Saskatchewan. Uh, a humble guy and, and uh, concerned about his father and his reputation, and he spends these years doing this, and, and now... Um, uh, his his family, his children, his daughters, I think his neighbors are seeing uh, the the source of his obsession over all these years and understanding his commitment to it. And I think it's been a hugely validating thing for Jerry. Uh, I can tell you, and I've spoken to him about this, so I know it's okay for me to say this uh, in public. During the writing of this book, there were twice when Jerry collapsed uh, completely emotionally and had to be hospitalized. Once he was down for two weeks, uh, completely incapacitated with Thorazine. They had him so drugged up because of, of the horrors of what this thing brought up in him. So you have uh, almost like the arc that Sanford himself went through. You have Jerry in this hellish state during the writing of the book. I was very concerned about his level of despair, who's now enjoying a tremendous sense of satisfaction uh, that this story has been brought out. He's been saying to his family for many years that he was going to do it, and it was kind of like, oh, yeah, Dad, okay, sure, mm-hmm. sure, Dad. And I just saw, in fact, on the uh, the YouTube page where I have a, a video, about four-minute video about this, and it's just there on um, The Road Out of Hell is the name of the video. Jerry's featured uh, in it, and I saw on the comment page the other day one of his daughters has tapped in just to say there publicly, Dad, we're so proud of you for doing this. Oh. Well, to a man like Jerry, this is, this is better than bars of gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be validated at this point in his life, he's in his mid-60s, uh, to, to show that it, what he's been talking about, the people have kind of been rolling their eyes at all these years, is a real thing, and that the public is now meeting his dad the way he wanted him to be met, and not just with that fragmentary personality that you see in Changeling that leaves people with the picture of uh, a boy who was a murderer when mm-hmm. Sanford Clark uh, was not. Uh, he was a victim. He was not a perpetrator. Well, tell people where they can get the book where and where they can, um, if you could be a little bit more specific about the, uh, on the Internet, where they can see this wonderful um, uh, video. I watched it. It was very moving. Where oh, they can I'm happy find to. That just and anybody who is, who is familiar with YouTube at all, just, just YouTube.com. When you get on YouTube, there's a little video tab. Click that video tab, and then you enter the title, which is The Road Out of Hell. That takes you right to the video. It's just four minutes, but it was produced beautifully. The publisher paid for it. They did a great job. Uh, I'm in there interviewed. Jerry is interviewed. Uh, we have uh, a rolling video of, of the murder ranch and the countryside around there as it looks today, as well as plenty of historical shots of how it looked back at the time. So really, in the course of four minutes, brings the viewer up to speed on, on what this whole story is and why we're so passionate about it. We, Jerry and I both, and, and people who have read it and loved it, understand that that passion doesn't have anything to do with a murder case. It has to do with the power of goodness, and even, if you'll forgive me for going all 1960s on you, the power of love. It was the love of his sister Jessie and his wife June that supported this guy all through his life, like two lifeguards swimming along beside a drowning victim. And uh, when you see that play out point by point, then it takes a cliche uh, like love is the answer and makes it a, a vital and valid and living force when you watch day by day how that operates in someone's life to protect them from despair. 
Yes, because certainly it did haunt him for the rest of his life, but he did have these loving people who were able to bring him out of these these flashbacks, essentially. That's and, right. And the book, of course, is on Amazon and where all books are sold, right? That's right. Bricks and mortar bookstores, uh, any of the online. It's available up in Canada, too. Uh, so, you know, it, anyone who wants it can certainly get it. Uh, and, and as website? I said, uh, my website is just anthonyflacco.com, F L A C C O. And, of course, you read all about it there. I have an audio of me reading the first chapter of the book, and there's also a click link there that will take you right to the video. So if there's any of your listeners that are a bit on the fence yet, I just ask, uh, watch the free video. It only takes four minutes. You'll see why it is we're so passionate about this story. And that was anthonyflacco.com, F-L-A-C-C-O. And, Anthony, thank you so much for sharing your your book and your passion. I mean, we can just hear how... How um, sensitively and with so much respect you were able to that you that there was that you were able to bring to this story not uh, not sugarcoating it but actually telling telling uh, how this man this boy to a man felt and how he did achieve his redemption. And well, thank you, Dr. Carroll. It's been so great to be here. I can't believe we've blown through an hour. I know. How did that happen? <laughs> did that happen? <laughs> I know. Well, that's how you'll blow through the book, too, folks. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.